You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to a very special episode of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we are coming to you remotely from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, and the M.S. Clark Memorial Library in Setauket, New York. Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Consider leaving a review or tell someone about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. So today joining us is a group of library professionals from around New York State. We have Danny Newman, who's a pre-K to 12 public school librarian at the Fillmore Central School in Allegheny County, New York. Emily Dowie, team librarian at the Greenberg Public Library in Westchester, New York. Joanne Mulligan, who's a library assistant at the Altamont Free Library in Altamont, New York. Juanita James, library information supervisor at the Brooklyn Public Library. And Keisha Watson-Phillips, the assistant director at the Baldwin Public Library. We are going to speak about the Developing Leaders Program that the group is enrolled in, their project, the Diversification of Library Profession. Okay, so first first and foremost, we have to give a shout out to Jeremy Johansson from NYLA. And if you're a listener of the podcast, you may remember him coming on in a previous episode. And their advisor, Rebecca Buttinger-Mulhern, for being so helpful during Developing Leaders Program and so helpful to all library workers during the pandemic. So tell us about the program. So the Developing Leaders Program is typically a nine-month program that we have to apply for, and they like a diverse group of public librarians, uh, academic librarians, and school librarians all to be involved in this. And we meet mostly bi-monthly, sometimes more, sometimes less, depends on if we have to move things around. And each of the Zoom meetings that we've had this year have been about an hour and a half long, and there's a different topic each week. So it's really awesome program to help librarians become better leaders. We've talked about empowering ourselves, advocating for ourselves, and, you know, all different types of things, um, how to work with budgets and, and, and things like that. So it's been a really huge program for all of us to be involved in, and our group has been fun. I'm the only school librarian in our particular group. So I've learned a lot from from having several public librarians in our group. But we also get to choose what is the most important to us. And they give us several topics that they want covered. And I don't even remember what the other ones were, but I know my number one choice is diversity. And I think we all got our first choices in this group. And we've had some amazing discussions about diversity. And it's, it's been a great program for all of us throughout the year. So that's ultimately what the Developing Leaders Program is. And it culminates at the end by having uh, everyone present what their group projects were. So there's the component where we're all in one huge group learning at the same time. And then we break off into smaller groups to do the big group project. And we come together at the end and everybody shows off their projects. That was great, Danny. And if you want to learn more about the Developing Leaders Program, you could definitely visit NYLA, www.nyla.org. All the information about the program is there. So if you're interested next year, you can definitely apply. Can you explain what your group project in this program is about? So our project is uh, just a call for more diversity in librarianship. Um, And this is not just the profession, but the collection development, programming, patrons, and the hiring process. 
So our project will hopefully help other libraries in their process of diversifying their library. Also, during our project process, we had very insightful and enlightening conversations with each other that we decided to do this podcast so we could hear different perspectives and experiences on diversity. The reason why we wanted to do the podcast is we really wanted everyone in the library profession to have access to our conversations. And I think it's important that just to start the conversation, because a lot of people don't want to have the difficult conversations that the library community really needs. And that's essential for diversity. So diversity, not just in libraries, but in society in general, should be a priority in modern society. So can each of you explain why diversity in general is important to you? So diversity means seeing myself and my multiracial family reflected in books, media, popular culture, and also the field where I work. And, you know, librarianship is really lacking in diversity. So I, I just think it's so essential that we, we really work hard to recruit more librarians of color. For me, diversity means inclusion. You know, everyone has a seat at the table. Everyone is recognized. Everyone's point of view is important and recognized. And of course, accessibility, like we are, we should be able to gain access to everything so everyone can be educated and be, again, included. Diversity means to me availability of different religions, social economics, statuses, races, disabilities, and gender, etc. All of that included for a space to have one common goal. Diversity to me means, not. I don't want to repeat anyone, but... People should be reflected in all aspects of life. We are a diverse country, so everyone should be seen in all aspects of it. We are, everyone's included, everyone's welcomed, and yeah. To me, diversity means seeing, recognizing, and respecting the differences in everyone, those you can see and those you cannot see. And I think that's probably one of the most important things is it's typically fairly easy to see differences in skin color, but it might not necessarily be easy to see differences in socioeconomic class, gender, um, you know, those in the LGBTQ society or community rather, and ability versus disability, age, things like that. Those are the things you don't necessarily always see, but those are just as important. Well, you know, libraries usually take the lead when it comes to, I don't want to say setting the standard, but we are, as organizations, we are a welcoming place where everyone should feel welcome. And it just makes sense that Talking about diversity should be a discussion that should be had all the time, not just because some director or administrator thinks it has to happen. It should be something that, and quite honestly, it kind of does happen to a certain extent in libraries. Again, it depends on what library you're in and the populations that you're serving and those kinds of things. But I think libraries do take the lead when it comes to social change and with being forward thinking. But this is one topic that I think we can move forward with and even get better at. Joanne, yeah, you had a question? And I think that's part of why we're doing our project this way. We're hoping that it's a way for librarians to take the initiative themselves and not wait until some situation forces them to become more diverse. Right. It shouldn't be imposed. It should be something that should be a natural progression. The same way there was a natural progression towards adopting the internet for libraries and introducing audiobooks and DVDs and the old VHS cassettes and, and all these other things. Natural. This is another thing that should be a natural progression within the field. So why is it important to diversify library collections? I know for me, um, 
I love to go into a library or I'm in my library and I pick up a book and I say, let me read this book based on the title. And there is some form of me that's reflected in this book, whether it's the characters where they grew up because, you know, they might have said, oh, it's a, it's Caribbean or they they talk about the hair or they, even in the in the picture books. Like I want to open a picture book and I want to see a character that looks like me, that that reflects my culture. And that's why it's important that we try to diversify our collection. And if we are not, if we are not sure how to, there's so many tools available to help us. For me, I think it means so much more than what's visible in outward appearances. I remember as a child, I grew up in a, an extremely white, rural, racist, bigoted area of Northwest Florida. And I was very poor. I grew up in a trailer, I, but I was Hispanic. I did not grow up in a Hispanic culture. Um, in fact, I was dissuaded from even mentioning that I was Hispanic by my stepfather, but I struggled to find myself in books and it always bothered me. I, I feel like even before I was a librarian, I was an English teacher and, and I really pushed getting my students in love with reading and, and in love with finding themselves in books. and. Sometimes I had to search and I had to search to find something that, that hit them. But if students cannot, if children, people cannot find themselves in books, they're going to lose interest in reading. I feel as librarians, our job is to, to develop lifelong readers because they will then become lifelong learners. And if they can't do it, I, I struggled to do it. So I made that my personal goal to make sure that every one of my students could find themselves in a book. And that, that's regardless of what their skin color or gender or age is. That's, if they love baseball, by golly, they're going to find baseball stories that, that have a little boy or a little girl who looks like them in a book. You know, Whatever it takes to make these children want to read all the time, that is what I feel is important in diversifying our collection. This is Juanita. So let me just piggyback on what Keisha and Danny said. I feel that it's important to diversify our library collections. For so long, children of color have not seen themselves in a positive role light, a human way in literature. So people of color was never allowed to uh, voice their own narratives or to have their narratives told correctly. So it's time today and now it's time to do so. So I relate to a lot of what everyone's saying. I mean, I remember being a little girl and my parents taking me to the local library. Um, and this is the same library where I get my first job as a librarian, actually. And, you know, it wasn't diverse in terms of staff and the collection wasn't very diverse. And I didn't see any books where the main characters look like me. And, you know, so that means that I couldn't picture myself in the books like so I, I had to really use my imagination to be able to see myself and you know because I'm, I'm mixed race I'm Jewish you know and I never saw a family that looked like mine and that was really difficult and you know I remember there was one librarian there and this is a librarian who I actually ended up working with as when I grew up and became a librarian and her name's Noelle Yount and she would try to help me find diverse materials, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of diverse books being published because this was like the early 90s. And that really affects children. And now we have the we need diverse books movement, but we have to acknowledge 
the effect that that has on people to not see themselves in the books being published. And so we need to make sure those materials get on the shelves. And I also just want to say that, you know, even though my libraries, they see themselves at the forefront of culture, you know, that hasn't always been true. I mean, libraries, they were segregated. And I think that there are people who want libraries to be neutral and they shouldn't be. They should never be on the side of the oppressor. So I think that there are people who think that, for example, if a Nazi wants to rent a meeting room, they should be able to and they shouldn't be. We should not be on the side of the oppressor. We should not be neutral. So I just I want to just put that out there. I also think diversifying libraries is important and collections because it's also an opportunity for others, for people to learn about other cultures, other genders, other races. And so not only is it a chance for people to see themselves, but also to see others. Joanne, I'm going to agree with you 100%. I struggled to find anything outside of my white racist community. And I grew up in one of the most beautiful places in the country and felt like I had to go way outside of of my local community to be able to find books that would take me outside of that world. And we all know when we sit down with a book, we get completely consumed. Hopefully we get completely consumed and we get to live in a different world. And that's, that's our way to travel. And I struggled as a young child. I, in our tiny little town's library, I had to go to the bigger libraries outside of town in order to find those things, to learn about other cultures and other races and other people, other places, things like that. Thankfully, I raised my children in a different area where they had more access to things. And of course, the internet helped with that a lot. But I didn't get as much in books as I would have liked to as a child and had to actually, darn it, I had to actually travel as an adult to find other cultures and things and learn about them. Definitely helpful to have those in the library, in those collections, regardless of what type of community you're in, they need to be able to see that diversity outside of their own lives. I remember when I, in the past, when I was a children's librarian and I used to order books and I remember looking in these journals and I would read these blurbs and I'm like, I try to imagine a little child or how they would react to these books. And I try to decipher like where, you know, from whoever is reviewing the book, like what you're saying about the book, like, okay, this would work well in my community. Someone will pick this up and be happy. And so I always immerse myself in these reviews and try to think about myself, even as a child, how am I helping someone else to to, um, to explore their culture and to see themselves reflected? So we have such an important role to play, even, you know, from the fact that we select these books, we put it up where we place them on the shelves, who we invite into our library and into our community, how inviting we are and, and displaying these books so that people can see them and they can take them out. You know, it makes a lot of sense, too, because I remember my middle school library and my grandfather was from France and I was dying for something that was French culture, and it was never anything. And then all of a sudden, one day, I actually found Snoopy books in French. Hmm. So in terms of now, for me, it wasn't, it was a little bit different than what we're talking about now. But this is just a way that I could relate to this. I saw those books in French, and they were very elementary. They were very elementary school. But, it, you know, I hadn't even started taking French yet. The only French I knew was from my grandfather. So I took out these books, and I started reading them. And it made me feel like there were books there for me if that makes sense to you guys. And part of the thing that is, again, this is late 70s, early 80s middle school, I got picked on because I was reading these books. So to a certain degree, 
I can understand how important diversity is because language can be part of that diversity as well because it's cultural. So in a weird kind of way, I can relate to the problems that people who are underrepresented populations experience. And like Juanita was saying, and, and Keisha, I think you were saying it too, you wanted to see a book that represented you and you wanted to see somebody who looked like you and maybe even spoke the language you spoke. So I can definitely relate to that experience with regard to, you know, being in the sixth grade and finding books in French because it just like it, it opened up a world to me that wasn't open before. Yeah, it's just like opening up a book and you're like, oh, my gosh, this this child was born in the United States, but went to Jamaica for summer holiday. And I'm like, whoa, that's that's exciting. Like that makes me want to. I was like, oh, so, yeah. I want to refer that book to someone and say, look, you know, this person, this character has Caribbean heritage and they're welcoming and, you know, they learn more. So, yeah, it's it's exciting. Yeah. And as a white woman growing up, I saw myself in pretty much every book. And so, like you're saying, Keisha, books about races that were not my own, it was a positive way for me to learn about it. And it was a because it was coming from the perspective of the writers and it was their experience. It was a pot. It was I always knew it was going to be in a welcoming light. It was always going to be positive. So I thought that was really important for why we should be diversifying our collection, because these books are going to be from they're respecting the race. They're respecting the experience. You know, I was just listening to you folks and I'm I'm concerned about the disservice that we're doing to the children and, and adults, you know, not having diversified collections when they walk up to the stacks and don't see themselves represented in a book, they're more likely to leave and maybe not read that book or not do any more pursuing of what they were interested in looking at. And I mean, even for my children, when they go to a library, you know, now they read books that that do personify diversification. And I enjoy that they write reports that talk about their friends in class that are not of the same color, right? Let's get really deep. I enjoy that now. And my childhood wasn't like that. Like I just, I didn't, you know, we had, uh, maybe Chris can agree, but I, li I like to get deep with these conversations because it's so concerning when I think about a child walking up to the bookshelves in any library or any institution and being turned away because the the staff or uh, higher ups didn't, didn't think enough to diversify the collection and be inclusive to all members of society. And that really, that's the part that really hurts me the most because I can relate to that, you know, with, with, with the children that I have and see the difference between what we're doing now and what we did back, back when I was growing up. As, as a teacher, like I said, you know, I, I taught English before and English is a great place to throw that diversity in when we can. But as a librarian, I've taken it to heart even more because in my school, I have two students who are biracial and two out of 680. And I have a few Native American students and a few who were formerly Amish, if you can believe that. So the diversity in my particular school is very, very low. It's almost non-existent. However, I push that diversity onto my students for that exact reason. I want them to know about other cultures you know, we, for example, one of the lessons I did at Christmas time was a five week lesson where we visited a different country every week and learned how they celebrate Christmas. Then we talked about other holidays that weren't Christmas. We talked about Kwanzaa, Ramadan. We 
Hanukkah. We talked about things that weren't necessarily Christian. And that's been an amazing experience for my students because they're, they're learning about other cultures, other races, other ethnicities, other ways of life. I've even been putting books into my library. Mind you, I'm in a very, very conservative district. And we have a Christian college in our district. So we have a lot of conservative types in our district, but I even managed to put books in there about different lifestyles, such as a child having two male parents, a child having two female parents, a child having a military parent who's gone all the time, you know, whatever, whatever it takes. Um, Cause it's another area that I've been working on is a social emotional learning as well. So I think as librarians, we have an obligation, regardless of whether we're in a school library or a public library, is that programming and, and the lessons we teach to our students based on where we're at is extremely significant. And that will help lead the way for those students and children to become more diverse in their thinking and, and the conversations they are having. What's also important is to have a diverse library staff. Because um, if a child comes in and they don't see a person that looks like them, they feel that they are not included or they can't enter into that building. But if they see a diverse staff, they feel more comfortable and more engaging to go into and look at that diverse collection that we're talking about. So the library staff is also important as well. I remember having a parent uh, at a former library that I work like again she's Jamaican so she came in and she was trying to sell this book to her daughter and the daughter just had no interest and then I, I overheard the conversation so of course I decided to join in and just the mom and I started interacting and then she started she she realized how excited I was and then I was like yes we same we share the same background we share the same culture oh my god this would be awesome I think it was coming from me the librarian that encouraged her to take it, you know, to check it out. But she's like, yeah, I won't take what my mom has to say. But yeah, I trust you. You're the librarian. And oh my gosh, you have the same, you have the same experience as my mom. And then, and she got so excited. She checked the book. I remember every time she would come in, I'd be like, are you done yet? What, what do you like about it? And then we would have these elaborate conversations about, you know, her mom's childhood, my childhood. And it's amazing. It's amazing what we as professionals can do, you know, to make a, an eventful turn in someone's life in terms of pick, just by picking the right book. Yeah, I think that's so important because it's one thing to have a diverse collection. If you're not showcasing it and you're not telling people about it, what's the point? You need to yeah. let people know that you have these diverse books in your library and they should check them out. But displays are important. You have to put them up. Put, they're not going out. We leave them on the desk. Leave them on the tables that they sit at. So they'll they'll pick it up. They're curious. So they'll pick it up and they'll start reading. And then they start asking you, "Do you have more by this this author? Or do you have? Is this a series? Or you know, you get a conversation going." Also, if you don't have a diverse staff, children of color won't know that it's an option to even become a librarian. When I was growing up, I didn't even see a librarian of color until, I mean, I became a librarian myself or until until library school. I mean, I was very lucky that I had mentors who encouraged me because I worked at a library and they told me that I could become a librarian. But there are a lot of people of color who don't have that, who don't have mentors who don't have people that encourage them and tell them that becoming a librarian is an option, which is why we need to recruit more library workers of color. 
Absolutely. And it starts from the very young age. So we push it into the schools just for library time or just to go in there to talk about the library. We, I used to do that a lot. And last year, I remember I was invited to speak to a group of teens. A group of us were um, librarians were invited to speak to the teens. They were participating in a summer um, program. And of course, it was Zoom and they all came on and they were turning their cameras on. And of course, they heard that um, these are all librarians. <laughs> so there were no interest in the beginning. And then we started talking about the profession and we started talking about the different areas that you, if you decided to become a librarian, you could be a media librarian, you could be a school librarian. You, and then the interest start, you know, cameras started coming on and they, were, they started to ask questions and a lot of them didn't know that you needed a master's degree. And we started talking about all this. They started asking about scholarships and it was amazing to know their interests at a particular moment. But before this, they had no idea what the field of librarianship was about. But once we started talking to them about it, they got so interested. I mean, we've gotten um, emails afterwards, like parents who were listening in. Oh my goodness, thank you so much. This is, re I mean, I want to become a librarian too. I didn't realize that the profession was there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There are parents who wanted to become librarians. They didn't realize what the profession was about and how much fun we have as librarians. And especially when you work with teens and, and children, mm -hmm. it's very exciting. And there's a whole world out there that you can participate in, you know, once you become a librarian. So it's great that we get to tell people about the profession. Yeah, I know, because I, growing up, I loved reading, I loved being in the library, but I never really thought of it as a profession that you go to school for and you there's a master's for it. I never really thought about that until I was kind of in high school thinking about what I college career I wanted. And I, I was like, I would love to be a librarian, but I didn't really know that there was a, you went to school for it. I thought it was just kind of something you applied for and you got. So I think it's really important that like Keisha said, you're having these conversations at a young age that there is this is a profession that you pursue and you learn about and you continually are having an education. I had a different experience. I went to a library since I was little. I used to take the books out, run out the door with them because I always wanted to read the books. And so as I grew up, I was very heavily involved in the library. I didn't know about librarianship until maybe when I got out of college, actually. And I worked as a library associate for a long time. I really didn't want to become a librarian. I wanted to work as a lobbyist, a political lobbyist. But when that didn't work out, you know, I tried to oh, I'll stay. And I did as a library associate for a long time. And then I went back and got my master's. So it was fulfilling for me to complete that task. And it kind of bridged my childhood years up until now. So I had a different aspect on it, but it's challenging based on the new times that we're in now, but it's also rewarding and fulfilling when you see somebody that you help out in the street and they come up to you and say, oh, thank you for helping me do whatever project they have done. And they got an A on it and they'll tell you how your help and your research helped them you know, gave them the grade that they have. Well, isn't it interesting, too, what we do as librarians, we go into this field wanting to help people. And this is something that's kind of lost on, especially my friends who are in the, the private sector. Like, well, wait, how much are you charging? Because of the Makerspace projects, well, how much are you charging for that? You're actually taking a loss? Why are you taking, you know, they don't understand the concept that once you get past 
the for-profit part of it. I think it's ingrained in people who work in libraries that we do things because we just like to help people. And bringing diversity into that really just enhances what we do. We all have innocent Juanita, I, I feel you. I was a political science major. I wanted to do all that lobbying and all that stuff too because I found that fascinating. But you quickly find out that it's very adversarial. And the one thing you could say about libraries in the macro, almost like the stereotype, is that we're non-adversarial. Um, look, we all have our problems with the industry and, and things that happen that we're not necessarily happy about. But in the macro, people who get into libraries and want to work in libraries do it because they genuinely want to help people. And, that, and that's whether you're an academic, whether you're in public, whether you're even if you're in corporate, there's that kind of tie that binds us all together is that we just we really, really just want to help each other and help the people who come into our facilities. Yeah, I know when I first started with my desire to be a librarian, my it was always I want to help people love books more. But now that I'm have been in a library for six years, I'm I'm getting my master's, it's so much more than just reading, it's information as a whole. And it's almost like you're, how do I get more people in? There's never enough. I mean, considering the times right now, you know, with the pandemic, but even before that, it's like, how are you not coming in? We have so much to offer. Like, you know, we try to promote as much as we can. And then there's still some people who just does not think we're valuable or that there's a need for them to come. And it's, it's, you're always thinking, like, how much more can I do? What else can I do to get people in the building? And I hope that... You know, as we reinvent the, you know, the future and what the library is going to look like after the pandemic, that this is something that we will definitely work on and trying to get more people to love and support us and, and to realize how much of an integral part of the community we are. And that's marketing. Yep, which absolutely. Which is a different whole podcast we could do it on, right? <laughs> I know, I know. But it is one that we've been working on in our NILA Developing Leaders Program. So Absolutely. Like, again, yes, as Danny mentioned, there's so many different groups. We're all focusing on different topics, but they all come together to promote what we would like our library to be, you know, in the future. And diversifying the library, you're getting people who might, if they don't see themselves, they're not going to come. They're going to come. They're going to stay. They're going to word of mouth. This place is a safe space. You'll see yourself in these materials. And if they see their favorite librarian or favorite staff member who who looks just like them, that's a word of mouth as well. Because they're like, oh, I have, I know somebody, Miss Juanita, she real cool. That also, that's a good advertisement as well. So doesn't all this start at the top with board members, directors, administration, choosing your library staff members, who you're going to hire next. You're down to your pages, uh, your part-timers, your full-timers with people that purposely pursue diversification, both in the staff and the collection. So I'd love to hear your comments on that. I'll start just because I have a different perspective on that. Being in the school library, you know, I'm the only librarian in my district. I serve, um, I have two libraries, but we're all in, we're in one building, very small rural town. So I am given free reign to purchase every book in my collection. I don't have to ask permission for it. I mean, I just have to have a budget requisition signed, which they do. I have had previously an administrator, for example, who told me I couldn't buy books about Fortnite because people get killed in the game of Fortnite. And I said, I have 80 boys and girls asking me for books on Fortnite. So after he left, he only lasted a year, reapproached the situation. And I was told, 
that's ridiculous because people die in Minecraft too. So, you know, and, and every video game you can imagine out there. So I vetted everything, but my situation's different. So I just want to throw that out there that when you have a staff and there's only one librarian possible in the district, we struggle to meet that diversity as far as staff goes. However, I think that's when it becomes that particular staff member's duty to make sure that they step out of their box and make everything in that collection diverse. And I have spent the last three years doing exactly that. So I do think that it starts at the top with the director, with the board. But I also think that just the staff, when there's someone who is trying to diversify the collection, when they're trying to diversify the programs, the staff has to support them because if the staff doesn't support them, if the administration doesn't support them, then it is very difficult to succeed. Okay, I echo with everybody what they're saying. Um, I just want to go back really quick on what Bob's statement was. I agree, it does does start at the top. I know at Brooklyn Public Library, we are diverse because Brooklyn is diverse. But as you go higher and higher and higher, it's a white female upper management. So we as well have more work to do. So I agree with everyone. Yeah, we it still it still needs to be worked on. I was just going to say that if you mentor people from when they're teenagers, you start them as, as pages at a library, you encourage them to become librarians, you know, you mentor them through college, you, you know, help them find a library school you know, help them find scholarships. Like, I just think you really have to do the work to mentor people. I think that we just talk about, oh, we want diversity and that's it. But I feel like there are a lot of people, they don't really want diversity. It's just something they say and they're not willing to actually put the work into it and mentor people and go to underserved communities and, you know, actually go to high schools and, you know, encourage people from marginalized communities to become pages and become clerks and become librarians. I think that a lot of BIPOC groups are actually putting in the work that other organizations aren't doing. And I think that's such an important point, Emily, because I mean, I don't know if this is true for everywhere, but a lot of times you're working your way up to director. You don't usually get your director, a director position right away. I mean, I'm sure in some cases. So if you're working at that staff and diversifying your pages and your clerks, um, they're going to work up the way to be the director, which then it's going to start with them. So if you're training them as they're moving up the ladder, you have a better chance of having a board and directorship leadership positions that are willing to put in the work to diversify their collections and programs. That's a great point. And you know what? If that starts from the from the hiring process all the way to the staff that they work with on a daily basis and the reporting that they have to do each month, if that diversification is included in all of that, they're much more likely to grow up in that mentality as they work and 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 move up in position, right? Then when you have programs like the Developing Leaders Program and the Public Library Administration Program that nurtures and help further develop, you know, there's a lot of people in the profession that's thinking, ah, that's not for me, ah, I'm not so sure. But then when you get involved in programs like these and then you start thinking your, your, your thought process is different now and you start thinking, yeah, maybe I should consider this or there's a seat at that table for me, I, I can do this, why not me? So, you know, programs are important. Education is important. It's all 
lumped together, it's important. Well, you know, it's too, we've talked about this ad nauseum on this podcast that it's, and it's, it's kind of like the running joke is that it's a second career for most people. Yes. So in terms of recruiting people, I think part of it is, it, it kind of ties into that, that age old thing that we're probably all sick of talking about. How do we retain patrons once they age out of teens? Mm-hmm. And I think that if we can keep that, that, that's my big thing right now is teens. I don't have a teen population in my library and I'm like trying to get them to to stay as a junior reader into teens and then come back when they're in like their twenties, 21, um, even later, just come back and stay. <laughs> right. So in terms of, of handling something like that, I think our recruitment strategy should follow those lines. Like, look, unless you're like one of those 2% of people, like my wife, that wanted to be a librarian from the word go, it's a second career or even a third career. So how do we come up with a strategy to target people who can come to the profession? And how do we do that? Maybe we groom them when they're in the teen department. Hey, you know, this is a great career. And then the strategy that we have over at my library is we get them started with the makerspace technology. So then when they age out, they can move into the adult uh, makerspace. So that keeps them coming back in. So if we could make that hard sell in one way, shape or form to those that come into the library and then to those people, you know, we need to get to the library schools. And and one thing, and I'm not dissing library schools, it's very hard to get an audience with the, the people that run the library schools to get them in there. We've been trying, we have an internship program and we can't get interns. So Uh-oh. for makerspaces, makerspace intern. So how do you get an audience with the, the people that run these programs to get the word out there? So I think a lot of it, yes, we can groom from the teens and the 20 somethings, but I think we need to groom from those that have already made the decision as well. You know, recruitment is a big thing to get people of color in so we can have more diverse staffing, but there may be pools of people that are there already. Maybe at CUNY Queens, maybe at Post, you know, maybe at uh, St. John's still has their program that's, I think, completely online now. And some other places, like we could reach out to our friend Jill Hurst Wall up at Syracuse, who I think is retired now. There are all these different people that we can reach out to in library schools all over the country to say, hey, this is what you can do. And how do we do this? Maybe even develop partnerships through NYLA to try to figure out how we can make this happen. No, I was about to mention, because Chris, as he said, develop partnership with Nyla. I should mention that recently Nyla created the Alternative Pathway to Librarianship. It's a task force that's going to be looking into these issues. And I mean, we're very new right now. I'm a part of this task force. This is pretty much our goal, the alternative pathway and how do we get people in. So we all remember the uproar that occurred with Dr. Seuss and the decision of the publisher. So can you each discuss the significance of the underlying reasons for the controversy? I think it's really interesting because I feel like people lately have been freaking out over this thing they describe as cancel culture. But for me, I like to think of it as accountability culture because I think that, you know, this was the decision by a private company and It was going to happen anyway. The thing that infuriated me about the Dr. Seuss situation is that for years, people of color were aware that these books were racist. I mean, the illustrations were, basically. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. Juanita. The thing is, like, we weren't listened to by our white colleagues. And then as soon as the private company made their choice, suddenly 
I feel like white librarians freaked out, basically. Everyone, there was this like mass hysteria. And then a lot of people tried to argue that the books and illustrations weren't racist. We have this listserv. We're librarians. We have listservs. Um, and I work in Westchester now. And so there's this, <laughs> there's this listserv uh, like for youth services. And I feel like there was just everyone was just freaking out and... You know, there's an argument to be made about what to do with racist and problematic materials, whether you get rid of it completely or you use the materials to have discussions and you can, you know, talk to kids. Okay, you know, children, like, what do we do with this? How does it make you feel? This is clearly racist, which it is. And then, but when that happens, I feel like if you're a person of color, you always have to prove that racism exists. Like, you have to write a thesis. And it just, it always puts us in like an uncomfortable, unwinnable situation. And it's like, I have to prove that. (laughs) Yeah. And like, it's like, I have to prove that Dr. Seuss, this beloved author, whose books are suddenly being pulled from publication because of clearly racist illustrations is a racist. And yet people still aren't going to believe me. And they're also going to complain about being victims of cancel culture. I mean, I remember going on like Facebook that week and it's like people were, oh God, I remember there was this like really racist poem about the Dr. Seuss, the whole uproar and people, I feel feel like people were just complaining about being like these victims, like we're the victims because we can't take out these books anymore. These books have been available for so long and I just imagine if you're a person of color and you always had to see these illustrations and I mean, they're pretty outrageous and, and now people are upset because, Oh, we can't see these anymore. And I thought the uproar was just so hysterical. And I feel like the worst thing is that when you're a person of color and it's like, you always have to prove that racism exists. And I just, I always, I felt like these were the same people that when George Floyd was murdered, they didn't care. They It's like they weren't as upset about that. They were more upset about this. And that really disturbed me. So that's how I felt about it. Yeah, because they jumped right from this is why we're getting rid of the book to, oh, you got rid of it. There's no middle like acknowledging that this is racist material. And it forced reflection of what materials librarians have in their collection. And like Emily said, they just... They didn't want to acknowledge that this is problematic material. Yeah, exactly. I'll go one step further and tell you that that I can tell you from from experience that to them, those types of individuals that think that way, it's not. And that's the scariest part of it is that we're working with, uh, I'll say it, we're working with in many different areas, people that don't consider that racism. So there's the biggest issue that I think we're attacking when you talk about the books like this, that in every argument, don't deserve to be on the shelf or in publication, but these folks don't see it that way. So that's the uphill battle that you have. And those folks are making decisions on who to hire and when to hire and where to hire. And and it starts from the, you know, from that perspective, unfortunately, that you'll never hear about because they won't tell you that. They're never going to sit face to face with anybody and say that they don't think that's racist. They'll only go as far as they have to to appease the uproar and then they'll just go back to where they were before. I told you we were going to get in depth about this, right? (laughs) This is my perspective. I see it. Chris, you see it, right? Absolutely. It's total BS to say it's not some other way. This is the way it is. And when those people respond, they respond just far enough 
to appease the people that are that are that are correct and then they go right back to the way they were right and people see it as a personal attack that they're pulling the dr seuss books and they're saying that this is race material it's like oh this is personal you're coming against what i feel it's like right but it's a forget- thin line between preserving the work, you know, of this beloved author and also right. rejecting outdated, insensitive depictions right. of racial inequalities. Yep. And you have to. Inability for them to see the personal attack that it's been on the shelf for the last hundred years. Right. But it's a personal attack on me now because you want to remove it because it's I'm not even going to because I totally understand. But that's the uphill battle. Right. And and what this project uh, serves to do and what Chris and I's involvement in this, I'm telling you, we have to get to where classes are given and, and we go to libraries and we talk about this to people to get changed because that's the real battle. Real battle is we'll respond just enough to stop this and then we won't even talk about anything else until it becomes a problem again, until a patron complains about it or a publisher decides to remove it. Then we'll pretend it's real. Right. Or make it real for us for a minute or two and then go right back to exactly. The, and it, it's horrific. And um, can I you interject? Oh, sure. sorry. So um, first of all, I'm so sorry <laughs> of my comment because I was ready to get to this question. So I agree with Bob Toharley. You said exactly what I wanted to say, because I felt when they had this, these books been out for years. And now all of a sudden it's an issue. And like Emily said, now all of a sudden it's like a cancel. We have a cancel culture. So why are you really taking the books off? Are you taking it off because you don't want a big uproar or a big issue going on with the society to say, oh, you're being racist. So and then it cancel out everything. Or are you taking these books out because they're really not that popular anymore? So. How long have these books been out? They've been out for years. They was talking about Africans and Asian people for years. Nobody said anything. So all of a sudden today is racist. Was it racist five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago? So, yeah. But if you notice now... If you notice now, Juanita, these books are like at the top of Amazon uh, list. There was so, like yes. 20 yeah. on them when I, when I, yes. like my, my director wanted me to pull them so he could kind of examine what to do. And half of them were out because 20 people wanted them. And I think that's kind of the problem with pulling them is right. you saw a lot of places pulled them and then that was it. There was no, we're pulling them because we see this as racist. They just pulled it off the shelf and then moved on. Yeah, but there's also a back end to that is now that you pull them off the shelf, now you're going to pretend like it didn't exist. They exist. So yeah. leave them on the shelf. Yeah. And then you're going to pull them, say, I'm pulling this because this is harmful material. You're just pulling them and it's like, oh, we never had them. But you, you that's yeah. like the fine line. I see it's like you either need to keep them and use them as teaching material yeah. Exactly. Or you can pull them because they're harmful. Like, and it, you need to justify why you're pulling them. You can't just like in secret get rid of them. But you understand I, that would require those people to admit that they are part of a racist culture. Exactly. And they're not going exactly. to say that. They're just not. They're going to respond enough to pull the books you have a problem with, and then go right back to the way things used to be. I agree. I agree 100 percent. But having groups like what you guys are doing and being on this podcast and Chris and I, we're going to get involved in this and have to bring (laughs) this. I'm I'm, I'm not kidding, because normally I don't get as passionate about these podcasts as I do. But this is just pure insanity to think that 
we're going to pop out into admitting that these particular things are racist, but the other hundred books that are still on the shelf that we're just going to wait for somebody to complain about are not racist, right? We're not going to dive deep and take a look at those. We'll wait until next year or the year after until the, that those folks complain about it and do something about that. It's a, it's a, I have a, and I'm speaking a lot. I'm sorry, but Emily and Joanne, you both made points before where we talked about the conversation that they don't really want to have and defensive response and not a planned action. And the difference between that, that's what I pulled out of what you guys were saying, is that right now it seems like the culture, the community is responding defensively. What's the issue? Oh, my gosh, let's let's take a day and get past it and pull the books and deal with it. I want it over before I go to bed tonight. So when I wake up tomorrow, I can go right back to the way my life used to be. Tell me if I'm wrong. So we need to come up with a plan where we actually go out, open their eyes and make them think about the diversification of the collection, the racism of a collection and and do things about it before it's a defense mechanism or a defensive action. Absolutely. You know, and there's one thing that I think is the, the undercurrent to all this is the actual definition of racism. Because to who? It, it, so it's one of those things where you can look it up in Oxford English Dictionary, but then depending on politically, which we're not political on this podcast, but politically, based on gender, based on race, everybody has a different perception of what they think the definition is. And I think the root of all of this has to do with the bedrock understanding and agreement that this is the definition of what racism is. And once we start at that point, it's not a sliding scale. It's not something you use a slide rule for. It's not a, well, this is racist today, but it wasn't yesterday. Or this was racist yesterday, and now it isn't today. Or as we were all saying, if we take the book off the shelf, we can go back to our regular life. And maybe in six months, we can kind of put it back on the shelf again. That's not fixing the problem. Now, people can say Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, all that stuff is also racist. And yes, it absolutely is. But I think we, we mentioned it earlier. That could be seen as a teaching moment to say, this is the way it was. This isn't a children's book that kids are reading and, oh, it's a cute little rhyme, not understanding the undercurrent of that rhyme, as opposed to a teaching material like some of the Mark Twain stuff, where it's there and maybe you don't read it out loud in class like we did back in the 80s, but you use it more as a teaching tool. Yes, it's a literary tool, but it's also a way to show the evolution of American culture of the time. Is it appropriate? Baseline racism, it's a completely racist book, both Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. But I think when we get back to the bedrock of what an ALA, I'm calling on ALA to actually define what racism is as a baseline for us all to use as our guideline to move forward, because that will help us with diversity in our collections. It'll help us with diversity in our populations. It'll help us with programming for under underrepresented populations it'll help us with serving underrepresented populations till we reach that point when unfortunately i don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime where we can actually say there are no underrepresented populations anymore but better it's our job to make sure it happens in our lifetime so our kids don't have to get stuck with it right The, the baseline has to be the definition that we can all agree upon now, look, we can't get Congress to agree on passing anything, so I don't know that they, we looked to Congress or the government. But if we can, through the organizations that we have, yep. build that baseline and say this is the actual definition of what racism is and, and get some kind of, look, we're never going to get 100%. If we can get 60%, I think that's a huge leap. But once we build that baseline and we work from that as the bedrock, only then can we as a profession 
move forward and really preach how we can do this. I'll get off my You're going to edit this part out if you think it's wrong, but I've got written down here that folks are running a program to include diversity. That's great. I actually see part of it as a program to combat racism. And I, I think that, right? I mean, maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, you can add no, it. No, 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 you're, you're, you're not. You're not. I don't think, I don't I, think I, you're wrong at if, all. If we're going to get deep and not just superficial and make it a nice people of color and two white hosts, let's talk about it, right? <laughs> a program to include diversity. That's fantastic. But really, when you think about it, if we're making people have to include LGBTQ plus people, making people have to look at books to see if they're racist or not. We're really talking about a program that combats racism that's been there for generations, not just a program to include diversity, right? I think the reason, though, that we said, you know, to promote diversity as opposed to combating racism, because this is a discussion that we have as a group had, is that diversity is more than just the color of your skin. And, Absolutely. you know, yep. you've got two white girls in this group as well. But that's the two white <laughs> yeah. co-hosts, you know? That's right. So, you know, w- we want to be careful to include everyone, not yep. just persons of color. It's everyone. It's the LGBTQ plus community. It's the, you know, people with disabilities. It is age. Age is a big issue. Um, yeah. You know, all yep. of that stuff, all of those different areas, which unfortunately we as an American culture want to label everything, but it's important to recognize every difference in every single person. So it's not just finding a book, you know, where, where we have a young black girl who finds a book with herself in it. We also want that young Asian boy to find Mm -hmm. a book with him in it. We want the the transgender pre-teenager to find a book with their self in it. You know, we want all of that. That's right. Well said though. And I think kind of going back to Dr. Seuss thing, I think the problem I have with that is this is the same people, the people who had a problem with Dr. Seuss are the same people usually, probably, I don't know for sure, that have a problem with the hate you give, have a problem with all American boys. You have to kind of find, you have to see like you have a problem with this, but you also have a problem with this. You're not right. I can get one message out there. It's if your library is offering anti-racism training, even if you think that you personally don't need it, just attend it anyway. Yes, be respectful and acknowledging somebody else's feelings or just be respectful. That should be the tagline of your anti-racism training is if you don't think you need it, you should be there. Not a lot of people who tend to have racist tendencies say, yeah, I'm a racist. Uh, unless you're part of the skinhead movement or something, chances are you're not going to say yes. that you're not a racist. Right. You are a racist. Look, we all, we all there are microaggressions. There's yes, we all, yeah. we all have it. We all, you know, we're humans and we have we have faults. But but the key thing is to acknowledge, Chris, just acknowledge. We all do it. We all have it. Just acknowledge it. And it exists. And just try to be a good person. How about that? Let's try that. Yes. Yeah. 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 You talked about defining racism. But one of the issues that I have is when you confront someone about racism or you accuse someone of being a racist, there are a lot of people now who are just like, well, I'm not a racist. So if I say I'm not a racist, then I'm not. (laughs) That's just not true (laughs) at all. You know, there are just a lot of people now who they talk about, well, it's cancel culture, it's cancel culture. They just don't have to take accountability for anything. And I feel like it's the same with racism where they can just say, well, I'm not a racist, so I don't have to take accountability for my racism at all. You want to tell if they're a racist or not, Emily, then ask them to stand with you in diversifying something or standing up to something that's racist. And then you'll know if they're 
if they're a racist. Absolutely. Because they, um, yes. because the ones the ones yes. that say I'm not a racist won't do anything because it'll make them identify that they're racist and they should probably yeah. fix that. Do something. Yeah. Like, do something about it. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yep. I'm interjecting so much, but my experience okay. just taught me this is. But this is great. This is change. this is knowing that we have allies, and and that's what we need. We need people who are going to stand up for us. Who are going to be there for us. Who are going to help us. And Chris and Bob, that's yeah, that's what you're doing. So don't apologize for interjecting. Also, sorry, um, not just to stand up with us, but allow us to have a space mm-hmm. to say okay. what we feel and what we experience, instead of saying, "Well, that's not true." Or you're too sensitive or um, you're taking it in another in another light or anything like that. Those are like everybody's saying those are the microaggressions. If I experience something like we're going back with the racism and it's going to be kind of difficult in a sense, because what may be racist to me may not be racist to you. So people have to understand that as well. And that's going to be a challenging point for people just to have a basis of what racism is because everybody experienced racism in a different way. That's the true cancel culture. In my opinion is the one where you cancel out somebody's feelings that has the experience of, of having racism shown to them. So somebody like Juanita could say, well, that's racist to me. And I damn well better listen or else I've canceled out her feelings. Absolutely. Which, which yep. I can't understand because I don't I didn't have that experience. experience. Exactly. Right. So exactly. that's not that's the cancel culture that we should all really talk about. Right. Exactly. So how do we recognize stereotypical and problematic representations in books and library collection materials? And once libraries do, what do they do with them? Again, this goes back to the Tom Sawyer and the Huck Finns and, and Dr. Seuss and all the other stuff that's out there, even videos, um, Disney's Song of the South. I mean, what do we do with these things? And how do we do it in a way where we can keep things in historical context? So it's a teaching tool where we're taking the inherent racism and using it as a teaching tool and still keep it for literature or maybe, and I'm looking, I'm looking at Danny because she was the English teacher. How do we do this? What's, what's the juggling match here? You know, I've struggled with this as an English teacher and as a school librarian. You know, we, we've talked about the Dr. Seuss. We've talked about Huck Finn, which, you know, as an English teacher, I would still teach. You know, there's also the Little House on the Prairie book, Laura Ingalls Wilder. And those were books I grew up reading, and I could totally recognize them. And I also recognized that was the way people around me felt about Native Americans and Black people. So I got it. I understood what the concern was. My concern is if we get rid of those books, like you said, we just pull them off the shelf, we're perpetuating that cancel culture idea. Mm-hmm. And and that's not what we want to do. History happens. That is the way our society was. And everything, you know, any kind of media, whether it be books, magazines, newspapers, movies, whatever, represents the time period in which that particular medium was done. And it's important that we don't eliminate those because if we eliminate our history, we're never going to learn from it. That would be the same as wiping out everything that happened in World War II and Nazi Germany. We can't get rid of it. We can't change what happened, but we can learn from it. And if we eliminate all of these books from our libraries and make them to where people can never read them, how are our children going to recognize 
that we come a little way. We've still got a long way to go, but, but this is what our society was a hundred years ago, less than a hundred years ago, 50 years ago. We've got a lot of work left to do. And if we eliminate all of that and we don't use these as teaching tools, then we are taking away a very effective tool for teaching our children how to be tolerant and how to be kind and respect all people. Right, and not repeat the same mistakes is what happened. Exactly. But Danny, I read on a forum, one of the librarian forums, of course, uh, on Reddit, about potentially labeling these, you know, as sensitive material books or Mm -hmm. things like that. What's your perspective on that as a school teacher? As a teacher and a librarian, I would have no issue doing that. I will tell you, I have not pulled any of those books from my shelf. My shelves still contain all of all six of those Dr. Seuss books. I was kind of surprised I had all six of them in my collection. Um, I still have Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer. I still have a lot of, of Little House on the Prairie books. And not only the Little House on the Prairie series, which are still very popular in my library, but I have what's called my first Little House books which are for younger readers they're in my easy fiction section and you know i haven't yet decided what to do with all of them but i have not pulled them from my shelf i also did not get the backlash from a lot of kids wanting those books so i didn't want to i didn't really want to highlight them at the time and it's it's been a process trying to figure out what to do with them but they are definitely things that would be used as teaching tools i've spent more time worrying about making a more diverse collection for my library than i have worried about pulling books that I'm going to want to use as teaching tools. You also have to take in parents' responsibility, too. Because if, you know, if a child check one of these books out and they have questions, I would hope that the parent or guardian would be able and would be willing to, to have a discussion and use it as a teaching moment with their child or children. You know, like just to have a heart-to-heart, real discussion about, yes, you're reading this book and this is the way it was, like Danny said. But this is, but we have, to, you know, we've come a long way and you can help. There's ways that you can help to not let this progress anymore. So we all have a responsibility to use this as teaching moments. As a school librarian, I feel it's my responsibility to say, you know, when we're talking about, and I can tell you, I don't think I have a single lesson that doesn't have some type of diverse lesson involved in it, that I would use those books and I would read those books and say, you know, let's talk about how our society is now. And I would do that with even as young as my first and second graders, because that's when you get them, you know, they have to get that knowledge in that early. And so to just eliminate everything is not what I feel would be important. I think labeling them as possibly sensitive material is a great idea. Um, I would even go as far as to send letters home to parents. Like, here's why this book is labeled this way. And here's a conversation you could have with your child about it. I, I think that would be a wonderful idea. Right. I love the onus on the parent to actually educate the child. I mean, go figure. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> a lot of times they educate things in the wrong direction, too. Right. Absolutely. And that's where they get their viewpoints from. And then when they go out into society, they try to, to navigate and then they're confused and they don't know, yeah. you know, my parents told me this, but this is what I'm learning in school or this is what my friend said. And how do I react to my friend? Do I need to, you know, it's a whole. Yeah. 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 And this beautiful book, I don't know if everyone has read it, The Anti-Racist Baby. Like, that's a really, really, yes. really good book. Yeah. That yeah. came out. And that's a great book to use as a teaching tool. From, you know, from, from the author is Imbram Kende. And I, and I think that would be an awesome book to use as a teaching tool. And I think it's important to note there are teaching tools in adult books. It's not just children. Like, how was this? A year or two ago, American Dirt came out. 
that was a very problematic book. I never read it, but what they've quoted and stuff, it is. And so I think it's important to show it's we have these children's books that adults were reading when they were younger, because a lot of them like and a Roll Hall doll was a he's got and I think anti-Semitic. I'm not sure. I know there was anti-Semitic in his books. Yeah, no, he's definitely anti-Semitic. I didn't I know he was anti-Semitic, but I wasn't sure if there was other problems. I know I remember the big thing was anti-Semitism, but I wasn't sure. I think in the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Oompa Loompas were, the way they were illustrated was really problematic, but mm-hmm. I think they may have changed that. Yeah. Didn't know any of this as a child, but broke my heart when I found out this in Yeah, because I know I had mentioned we were talking one time, Harry Potter and the problems with J.K. Rowling. And I I loved Harry Potter. It had a huge influence on me. me becoming a, a avid reader, wanting to pursue a career with books. And I would read it probably once a year. We read the whole thing. My one book is split in half because I read it so much, the spine broke. I can't look at it the same way. I know. Now it's ruined for me. It, it's ruined for me. And I think that yep. is a part of why we need to teach youth and teach adults you have to look at these books differently. Mm-hmm. We have to label them to show like there are problematic parts in these books. No, I was going to say on the JK Rowling thing, I was so furious. I mean, I personally have a daughter who is gay and I have another daughter who, if she had to label herself, would say she's pansexual. And so I feel very strongly about the LGBTQ plus community. And I'm a firm supporter of that community. And JK Rowling just, made me want to vomit you know really that's the way it was and when her new book came out as a mother of these you know young ladies i did not want to purchase that book as a librarian i knew i would have students who would want it so i had to battle i had to push my personal beliefs aside which is what we should be doing but i will tell you it it made me sick to my stomach and I took it up to my high school library and I looked at the library, the library aide, and she goes, you did it? And I said, yes. And she knew how I felt about it. And she knew I was so mad, but I was like, I have to, because it's not fair to push my personal belief also on, on my students. So, you know, that's where that diversity comes in. Like, okay, she, I guess she's allowed to have her ridiculous views on transgenders, but you know, I would never read it. I, I, well, I refuse to read any more of her books anymore, but that's my personal decision. I think also it helps having a diverse staff because they can also point out when certain books are problematic. I think if your entire staff is white and cisgender, I think it's hard for a library to be able to tell, oh, maybe we shouldn't order this book or maybe we shouldn't display it everywhere, you know, because I mean, you can order a book, but maybe you don't have to spotlight it everywhere or Mm -hmm. you can point out, hey, this is sensitive material parts of it or are offensive because I agree that like we don't have to just remove it from the shelf but I think that you can use it as teaching material like we said but I mean it's hard to even tell if the material is offensive if you know everyone on your staff is white and you don't have any people of color or anyone from the LGBTQ plus community basically if your entire staff looks the same yeah I'll be honest as a cis white woman I don't always recognize what is considered stereotypical in some cultures because I don't know any better. So I think having a diverse staff who knows and can say, this is problematic and offensive to me. That, and I think that is such a help in identifying these materials and doing better. But it's also up to that person to educate themselves. Mm-hmm. And also don't go to that one culture 
oh, let, let me just put it out like this. Don't go to the one, the one black person you got on staff and ask them if that's racist. Mm-hmm. You should know, based on your own history and your own research, if it's racist or not. And if you're not sure, then you can ask them, well, I read this. I think this is racist. Can you confirm or deny or explain to me? Mm-hmm. And maybe that person can do that. But again, all black people don't think the same. So what may be racist to one black person may not be racist to another. What about reaching out to your communities and putting together a blue ribbon panel that meets maybe once every three months? And we do collection development. The person that manages the cataloging can set that aside. That's one for the panel. And then have a group of 15, 20 people. Because, look, we may work in areas that are predominantly white, but there's a reason why people are called underrepresented. They're still in those communities. They're just not there in the size and volume. So reach out to the community, reach out to your chambers of commerce, reach out to churches, reach out to your synagogues, reach out to your, your mosques, reach out to all these places and say, we'd like to put a panel together that can evaluate some materials that we're not sure about and have it on a a quarterly basis, let's say. That makes sense since we, we work on quarters and have them send them copies of the book ahead of time, however many copies you've ordered, because you don't want to order them and then all of a sudden, well, we're not going to use them. You don't want to be right. flippant with the library's money, but pass it around and have them come up with a rating system somehow on a one to 10 or a, one, or, you know, a four star rating. How do you feel about this? And have them write their opinions and it can be completely anonymous. And, and then you can make a decision based upon that blue ribbon panel or, or task force, how you can treat this book. And like Juanita says, just because the color of somebody's skin may be the same as another person, you may not have the same likes and dislikes. That's humanity. But again, going back to that whole concrete thing of what racism is, th- these are all the conversations we need to have and we're not having them. Chris, it- can I interject really quick? Because I, I think you're onto something, but I'm, I'm also kind of thinking of it from a different perspective as well. Is that, if you were to come up with that particular panel to ensure that that panel is as also diverse, it can't just be a group of black Americans. It can't just be a group of white people. There needs to be a group. And that will serve two purposes. Not only will you get that diverse perspective and all voices heard on it, but I think it will also open others' eyes to what could possibly trigger or upset or define racism or, you know, whatever diversity um, we're dealing with there so that other people can understand. I think it will open up a world of understanding and, and possibly build some tolerance within the community as well. So I think that I don't even know if you realized you were doing that, but I'm thinking of it like I would love to sit on a panel like that because I feel like I would learn so much more about those underrepresented communities and populations if I were to sit in on a panel like that so that we could discuss, you know, how this this particular book makes them feel or this passage in this book makes them feel that would, that would just make my brain explode and make me happy. Wow. <laughs> I love how she put that. Jeremy's got I some homework. A, <laughs> I have a twist on that. I agree with the panel, but I think also it has to start in-house first because the library is the example for the community. Since they make the library like the social hub of, of a community, I know at Brooklyn Public Library, we started, um, they're going to start like a panel, like you discussed, 
um, of different people of color and um, all the diversity of on the on a like a collection development committee to have a conversation about these particular books. And of course, I signed up for it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so we um, hopefully we can get something resolved and, and then we can be the example for the community to do, as you said, bring in, bring the community in for a bigger panel to have the discussion about the books that's going on in their own local libraries. Yeah. And I know people would, I mean, libraries among every five years or so do strategic planning and they involve the community and there's always people who are willing to be a part of this. So this is pretty similar. And for some reason now I'm thinking like, how come we haven't done that already? <laughs> you know, like we do strategic planning all the time and we get the community involved and they tell us what they want to see at the library. Like this is a no brainer. This is something that we definitely should do. So for me, I do think any starting house, I would have to go outside my community for this to get this type of diverse panel. I would have to. Same. I would too. I, I mean, I absolutely would. But you kill two birds with one stone. You you so, get a more diverse yeah. <laughs> collection, right? You get a more a more yeah. diverse collection. You get to talk about um, how how certain books make make everybody feel too. That's a good idea. You know, I'm, I'm thinking actually in terms of yes, it would be great on the library level. But for for Joanne and Danny. Maybe that's not something that's possible, but maybe it could be something that your individual system could put together. Mm -hmm. That way you're broadening that scope where you can bring in your LGBTs and you bring in your underrepresented communities, whether it's based on race or based on sexual orientation or, you know, based on culture. I think it makes some sense to have it on a system level. So mm -hmm. if you have a community that is 99.9% white there can't be a discussion that way and if you're mm -hmm. trying to in that 99.9 percent .9 population develop a, a culturally diverse collection how can you do that effectively so i, I think it could be something could be done on the system level and for mm -hmm. those of people not listening in new york state uh, our counties have systems that kind of coordinate or interlibrary loan and and coordinated ordering and things like that just for the people who aren't in new york state who don't understand what what that is um it's like a consortium or if we can't do it on that level, which is quasi-county level, maybe there is a – you listening, Jeremy? This could be a NILA initiative, or this could be the New York State Library's initiative, something that could come down from in Albany. My, in my system, I would get that diversity, but not in the community my library serves. Right. So I definitely could go in the system. Right. I guess, Chris, to your point, making the case for the need for that is what we're doing now. Like we're in the very infant stages of doing that and making the case that we need this to the system or to Jeremy, right, or to Nyla is is what is what this podcast can do, you know, to actually get boots on the ground and say, there's a need for this now. Which one of you groups would like to help us fill it, right? And then you start from there. And not just put it on organizations within our profession that are librarian, like uh, librarians of color organizations. It sh this should be across all divisions, and it should be across all, uh, in, in terms of SCLA and NCLA, it should be all the subcommittees. It should be mm -hmm. something that is, I don't want to use the word required, because that makes it sound like it's being imposed on them, but it should be something that should be added to the charters and to their bylaws, and where they have to include diversity in what they do. And I don't know what that verbiage looks like. I don't know how that would be instituted. I, like Bob said, this is infancy kind of stuff. But, but you know what? Bigger impact, 10-mile lookout. Um, we all get together, write something up, and send it to ALA. And then 
ALA. No, I'm not even kidding. I mean, you said, no, but look at this guy's like, like, we're developing stuff from this. Do something like awesome. that, Chris, based on what you said and whatever we agreed <laughs> upon, obviously there's a need. We send them a copy of this podcast. We write something up and it goes to ALA. Then ALA makes that designation and then everybody else has to listen. Right. So you start from that would right, be great. right there. <laughs> you know, you, when you start there, you don't have yeah. to petition Nyla. Not that they wouldn't, but you don't have to. You don't have to petition SCLA or you, you know. You do it ALA at the top, and they no, the Yes, there's room for this, and yes, there's a need for this. Thank you for pointing it out. My gosh, we should really get on it. And then, boom, everybody else has to follow along. So, we may have some work set out for us, but this is the baby stage. Diversify is fly. Well, we good. actually should probably mention how we actually came up with our team name which is to be diverse because when we had our very first group meeting uh rebecca our our mentor for our group she went through the program previously and she completely forgot we were supposed to come up with a team name so when we went back from our breakout session into the full zoom meeting jeremy just wrote down okay tbd for to be determined and then we're and then rebecca's like or to be diverse. <laughs> We're like, yeah, we like that. So it was a complete fluke that we came up with that name and, and Jeremy didn't realize when he was starting there, but we all went with it. It was perfect. So yeah, to be diverse. Cause what is it to be diverse? We're like, our group itself is diverse, you know? Uh, would we have less, we already know the answer to this because we've been talking for a while about it, but would we have less challenges diversifying the collection if we had a more diverse staff? No-brainer. Yes. Almost makes me laugh that we're <laughs> I know. Okay. So far down, but it's okay. It's great. Yeah, I, I thought yeah. about this question a lot because I'm, you know, one of the two white women in the group. I'd like to think that as a white woman, I have educated myself quite mm -hmm. a bit about other cultures and races. I've traveled a lot, spent some time in other countries, learned a lot about people, and I ask a lot of questions. I am, I'm, typically I'm not afraid. I'm a pretty forward person. I don't have much of a filter, but I ask a lot of questions. And, you know, we've talked in this group a lot. We actually had a great discussion the other day. They always just seem to happen really well between us. But even the difference between, do you prefer to be called an African American or a Black American or a person of color? I question that because I don't know. And, and I, you know, Juanita had a really great come back to that, which she mentioned briefly earlier, was that it depends on who you ask. Yeah. Because yeah. As, as a whole as a whole race, not necessarily. They don't all think the same, and that's good to know. Um, the same with people in the LGBTQ plus community. You know, what do you prefer to be called? Um, so I, I'd like to think that, that even though I am white, I'm pretty educated in, in other cultures, and I'm extremely tolerant of everybody. I, I, I love everybody. I want everybody to be happy, and I want to help everybody. And, you know, I think I'm in the perfect field to be able to do that. Or I should say, because I'm there, it's worked out that I'm good at my job and, and what I do because I am so open-minded. I don't like to think that I even have microaggressions against anyone. I'm sure I do because like we said earlier, I'm human just like everyone else, but I am so open to anything. And so, yes, I absolutely think that if we had a more diverse staff, it would help. It would help our patrons, like we like we talked about before, having being able to find themselves and finding someone with whom they can connect. But I like to think in my tiny little white rural school that I'm doing a pretty darn good job of showing that diversity and that tolerance to everyone. 
in and around our community, even if my community is 99.999% white. You know, I think that there are white people who can elevate those around them. My old supervisor, Jennifer Daddio, she nominated me to be um, an SLJ uh, or a, a library journal mover and shaker. And so the only reason I received that honor is because she nominated me. I think that, you know, it's not that just because you're white, you can't diversify the collection or be good at your job or be part of a team. This woman, uh, Jennifer Daddio, was so good to me. And I feel like I learned so much from her. But I also think that we really need to recruit more people of color because there are so many people who they need more mentors. They're really lacking opportunities. They haven't been promoted when they should be promoted. So I just feel like working in the environment uh, where I used to work, a lot of things wouldn't have happened if there had been more people of color in that workplace. I definitely don't think that just because you're a white librarian doesn't mean you're not good at your job or you don't deserve that position. I mean, um, I think I spoke before earlier in this podcast about um, a woman named Noelle Yount, who I remember from when I was a little girl and that I actually worked with her. She was so good at ordering diverse materials. I remember her actually giving me diverse materials as a child. And she was one of the only librarians who did that. So, I mean, I think I'm only where I am today because of mentors that I had who, who were white librarians. So uh, it's interesting. Um, and adding on to that, Joanne, I'm sure you'll probably say something similar, but I have no idea what it's like to be an oppressed black person. I have no idea what it's like to be someone who has to hide my sexuality. I, I don't know. I will never know that. I know what my friends have gone through, but I can't, and I can empathize, but I can't personally know what it's like. So having that diversity within the staff is absolutely important. Cannot replace, even though I can educate, myself so the day I die about other diverse cultures and communities, I won't ever personally know what they have gone through. And I think an important point to make is while we should have a diverse staff to help with the collection and it'll be easier, you can't wait until you have a diverse staff to diversify. Absolutely. Yep, I agree. That's right. Because it might, depending on where you are, it might never happen. You might never have a diverse, diverse population. Doesn't mean that you cannot diversify your collection. No, it's perfect because you know what it means to not diversify your collection is mean you're means you're doing a disservice to the people in the community that are depending on you to do that. You're going to change people's lives by diversifying your collection because you're going to have that book that they want or that DVD that they want when they come in. They're going to see themselves represented in their community. Okay, so let's move on to our final question. Another goal of your project is to encourage collaboration between public and school librarians and to identify ways to diversify programming and curriculum that celebrate diversity in this form. Your team's created a diversifying toolkit to help you with this. Can you explain this further? So our toolkit is to help other libraries and librarians um, establish ways to diversify their collection. So it's all aspects. It will have programming, collections, staff, I believe, I know, Emily, you were big on the PowerPoint. I don't know if you want to jump in. But it's just a way for us to help other libraries if they do not know where to start. And just a baseline that they can work off of. Yeah, sure. So I created a PowerPoint and I included a lot of things in it. I included articles. There's a really cool video. It's called Where Are All the Black Librarians? It's a really cool video. 
it kind of encapsulates our project a bit because we're well, where's all the diversity at? And so um, this really cool uh, YouTube creator who's also a librarian, she's like, where are all the black librarians? And then she basically explains not only like where are all the black librarians, basically there are black librarians and basically why um, <laughs> why there's such a lack of diversity in librarianship. And so that's our toolkit is very extensive but that sums it up basically mm. with why is there no diversity kind of what we were saying before well it starts at the top but i feel like we put diversity back into the field a little bit i mean yeah our toolkit is for everyone and hopefully when it's all done people will be able to access it and they will find value in it i just wanted to interject that we all took a part of creating the toolkit and Emily, thank you for composing it together, but we all took a collective and we put all our resources and YouTube videos and articles together. So we all had a hand in creating the toolkit and Emily brought it together. And if you don't think your library needs a toolkit, your library needs a toolkit. Right? <laughs> like That's that. how I'm going to go with. If you don't think you need nice. it, you should be you at need it. it. And you you should, need you it. definitely need it. And even uh, diverse libraries that are already well-established diverse, the population is changing all the time, so you're, there's always going to be a need to continue to diversify. One of the things that we have talked about as far as building the collaboration between public and school libraries, I just even think within this group, I feel like we've learned a lot about how I know I have from the school library perspective learned a lot about how things work in a public library because I'm just not as familiar. You know, when you go to library school, which I'm in right now, you're on one track or the other. And, and I don't delve at all into public librarianship. So I know nothing. You're got, you guys are talking about pages. And I was like, I don't need pages of a book. What are you talking about? So I don't even know what those are <laughs> because in my tiny little town, I promise you, we have one part-time librarian. That's it. And they, they don't typically have degrees. Yeah. So we, we don't have that stuff that you guys have in the big city libraries. So even just learning about the different libraries has been helpful. And I've actually started some, a little bit of collaboration with my public librarian as well and in the town where I live and the town where I work because they're about an hour and a half apart. So it's, it's been very educational for me. And the toolkit as well will be educational regardless of which field you're in. But it will also help you learn more about the other. I think that's important because I worked in a public library for about six years and I started on the school library track um, when I started my master's. Now I'm back in public in the school library. It's so education based. So you really have to focus on standards and stuff. And there really isn't. They're kind of separate, even though they should be working together, but they're very separate because they had different duties. So I think that's also with that collaboration, you're getting both and you're understanding both because a lot of times with like teens and stuff, they're in the school library, hopefully, and but you want to get them in the public when they're done with school. So having that collaboration is going to ensure continuous readers. Well, we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Holy cow, do we cover some ground. <laughs> we sure did. Thank you for taking time out of your day to speak with us about this important topic. When we get back, we're going to be asking our group our top 10 library questions, or what we like to call the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. And we always give thanks to Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming the list of questions that we ask our guests. We'll be right back.
We are back with Danny Newman, Emily Dowie, Joanne Mulligan, Juanita James, and Keisha Watson-Phillips, who will be our next participants in our 032 list. The questions on our list were inspired by Literary Hub, a source for news about libraries that have stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com. They do a great job of educating and informing library professionals on topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. Okay, so... Uh, what did you want to be when you were a child? I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> I wanted. I first wanted to be a nurse because I wanted to wear scrubs all the time. I thought that was so cool. And then I wanted to be a reader. And I'm like, that's not really a profession. <laughs> but I kind of stuck with that for a while. I was like, I want to be a reader. Because that'd be great. Get paid to read all the time. I wanted to be a teacher and then a lawyer. I always wanted to be a history teacher. Like, I'm very specific. I wanted to teach high school. I wanted to be a teacher, and it was going to be history. That was it. That was the only thing. There's nothing else. <laughs> I have always wanted to be a librarian. Um, I can honestly say that I spent every waking moment in a library when I was a child. It was an escape for me. I had a pretty crappy childhood, and that was my escape. That has always been my dream. My second choice was to be a reporter. And I did that early on. In fact, my undergrad degree is in broadcast communications. So I, I've met both of my like childhood dream goals. All right. So what is your first memory of a library and who brought you to the library for the first time? My parents brought me to the local library um, and they were always reading to me. And I also remember my school library. And there was a librarian named Mrs. Amabile. And the funny thing is that I actually worked with her, too. Because <laughs> um, she, when she retired, she worked at the local library as well. Uh, and that's where I eventually worked as an adult. So I feel like all my childhood librarians I eventually got to work with. I was first brought to the library by my mom for story time. But my first memory is in first grade because my elementary school was like three minutes walking distance from the public library, actually where I work at now, you went over in first grade and you got your library card. Um, and, and then you got to check a book out. So that's my first memory of a library, even though I had attended one before that. It was mostly my mom. She took me to the library, my local library and my grandmother. I went into the library and I got my library card. At the time they used to have a mechanic where you make your library card and I was able to write my own name. I was very proud and I showed my mother my library card that I could write my own name. So that, that was a good one. I think my experience is a little bit different only because, again, I grew up in, the, in, in Jamaica. So our libraries weren't as advanced as they are here. And, you know, I remember like as little kids, we would go there on Saturdays to get um, to get to read books or to get our project done. And that was exciting for us. You know, there's a little community library with books. And of course, the technology wasn't as, as advanced, but we made the best of what we have. And I think that from the beginning, Gaggle that instilled the love of library in me. My first memory of a library would have probably been in kindergarten when I went to the library. My parents worked a lot when I was really young, so I never went to a public library. I don't even know if we had one in our town where we lived. So mine was definitely my school library. It wasn't super impressive. I had the librarian all the time and the old older woman with the chains on her glasses. That's, that's my school librarians that I remembered growing up. And I swore if I was ever a librarian, I would never be a shish librarian. So I'm definitely not. I'm very loud and my library is definitely not a quiet place. Okay. When did you decide to work in a library and what was your first career path? 
I was 17 and I became a page at my local library. So my career path was I worked at that same library for 13 years. Um, And I worked there through high school, through college, through grad school. And I was just basically encouraged to become a librarian. I was really lucky. I was kind of mentored through the civil service test. And also uh, that was when I believe in Rockland, they froze the civil service, the librarian one test for a while. So I kept waiting and waiting for them to unfreeze it. So I was just very, very lucky. Yeah, I've worked in the library since I was 17, I think. And I've been there since. And I knew at that point I wanted to be a librarian. So it kind of I had the opportunity to work there. I'd wanted to for years and years and it arose. So I've been there since. I also work in a museum, the USS Slater. So I kind of have two jobs. They're both information. So that's my career path. I've have always really known. I had my first experience as a working in a library was my school library in my Catholic high school. And then I didn't go back. I wasn't interested in it. When I went to college, Um, I was really heavily into political science and my last year I fractured my ankle. And so I was bored in the house. And so I I volunteered at my local library and then I got involved and I became a part-timer. And then we had a program for library associates. Those are who are not librarians, but they are librarian assistants. And I became one for many years. And then uh, the other librarians, mentored me to encourage me to go back to school to get my master's and eventually I did and hence here I is. And for me again, one of my first jobs was in Jamaica as a research officer in a special library, National Library of Jamaica, and that's where I again fell in love with libraries. So my first career path, I've actually had quite a few. I was a reporter right out of high school and then I had my children young and went to college afterwards. So I worked in the mental health field for about 10 years. I was an educator, high school English teacher for 10 years prior to becoming a librarian. I also worked as a college professor, an English college professor. So I became a librarian three years ago. There was a position open at a school about an hour and a half away. And there were two. One was the high school English and one was the library. I really wanted the library position and that's the one I got. So then I started doing that and I'm in love with it. I wouldn't change that career path for anything. So who is your favorite fictional librarian? So that would be Evie from The Mummy. So I totally loved her. She was cool. She was fashionable. She loved adventure. She was intelligent. She's totally my favorite librarian from popular culture. I don't know if I can say I have a favorite fictional librarian, but I always loved the library scenes in Parks and Rec. I thought those were always so funny. So I can't have a specific library, but I always loved those. Isn't that Ron's like ex-wife? Yeah, Tammy too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're, always, they're always like, you have an overdue fine. They're like, no, we don't. Um, my, I don't have a fictional librarian, but I had a real person, but he wasn't a librarian. LeVar Burton from Reading Rainbow. He was my favorite. Yeah, my absolute favorite. I, I used to love singing yes. the song. I used to know the song by heart. So whenever <laughs> they come on, I used to sing the song and watch him and stuff. Yeah, I'm going to go rogue. I'm not even going to say her our fictional character on this podcast, but I did for Orange is the New Black. That was my show on Netflix. And I really loved 
Samara Wireless character. I'm not going to say the character's name, but I really love her character. And I loved her name, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> this was a tough one for me because I don't know that I really paid attention to fictional librarians in movies. I pay more attention to the technical aspects of movies, not the characters in them. Honestly, it would probably, um, I would say my favorite fictional character in a library is Belle from Beauty and the Beast because the awe on her face when she walks into the library is how I feel every time I walk into a library. So what would you be doing if you were not working in a library? Um, I'd like to think that I'd be some kind of activist because I consider myself a librarian and an activist. So I'd like to think that I'd be grassroots organizing somewhere. A bookstore. I'd probably work in a bookstore. Ideally, any type of career surrounding books. Um, probably working or trying to be working in a political arena because that, that's my passion. And um, I advocate, as you know, um, very loudly. And I say what what's on my mind. <laughs> so, yes. I'll still, I would still be a teacher. I think that I would still be the high school. I don't know if I would still teach history, though, but I would definitely uh, be a teacher. I would be an English teacher still. <laughs> what is your favorite section of the library? My favorite section is uh, probably the teen section. And in Greenberg, we call it Teenberg, and we have a really cool sign. I also, YA is my favorite section. It's kind of where I first started definitely like this was a serious like career path i wanted to YA kind of was my starter so um my favorite section is the children's section because i'm a children's librarian so that's my favorite section children i'm youth services all the way but i tend to read a lot of YA books and that's one of my favorite sections i'm not even ashamed to say it. i can't get in some of these adult fictions but the YA books are, are awesome and i still love them my favorite section of the library is always the reading area where I can sit comfortably and, and curl up and read a book. I prefer like recess floors. One, one school I worked in had a recess library floor and I loved it because I felt like I had just a space that I could lie down and it was almost like a window seat for me. That's, that's always my favorite place where I can sit down and, and just absorb the, the book I want to look at. Okay, so if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? So I would definitely add more space to the teen section because I feel like teens are the most <laughs> ignored population <laughs> in the library. You're getting a so lot of head nods. I would give, <laughs> yeah, I would give them more space. I would give them like cafe tables and cool cafe chairs. I give them sofas. I would definitely just give them everything. <laughs> exactly the same. I. If I go in a bigger library and they have like a teen room, I'm like, oh my God, or even a couch. I have four shelves for teens in my library because we're just so small. And so I'm like, more space, a teen section is like ideal. I'm going to have to defer from the teen group, <laughs> work for the children, advocate for the children. My particular branch is a one level. So I would have, buy, get another, make another level for just for the, for the children. For my particular branch, because there's only one level, so everything's in one area. So I would like to make another floor for just for the children. Oh boy! And now, as an administrator, I feel like I have to say everywhere I want more community space. I want to get out the children's room to expand the children's room, and of course, 
Definitely the teen room. Like, you know, I remember um, Baldwin having one of the first teen rooms in the in the county. And now I feel like we're lagging behind. And I'm like, oh, no, we, you know, so we're in the process of trying to get that room, you know, alive again, reinvigorated, new furniture and stuff. So I can't wait until that, you know, for that to happen. And I'm excited. So, yes, the teen room. But again, also, we, we can always use more community spaces for meetings. I would add reading spaces for as many patrons as it could fit, because that, again, is my most comfortable. Or maybe window seats everywhere. Like if the whole library was, you know, like windows everywhere, window, comfortable window seats for everybody to be able to curl up in front of the window and read. So what do you absolutely love about libraries? I just love that libraries are for everyone. They're the last thing, one of the last things in our society that's free that everyone is supposed to be able to come in. You can check out books. You can use computers. You can get a library card all for free. And now we have so much programming online. You have access to eBooks. You have access to... I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of everything you have access to because it's so much. We literally offer everything. I just think libraries are amazing. I mean, I give us all the funding. <laughs> give us everything. You hear that, Governor Cuomo? Give us everything. But yeah, I think libraries are just so special. I love them. I think that they give people everything they need in society. I mean, there are some libraries that that feed people. We educate people. I think I, I just think libraries are amazing. <laughs> For me, I just love being surrounded by books. I think if there's just something so comforting and it's like safe, just being surrounded by books all the time. Um, for me, it's information and knowledge. You have, you are able to get the information, whether it be printed or online, and you can find out about yourself. You can learn about different cultures, different countries, all at the library. And as Emily said, it is for free. You don't have to pay for it. Like my teammate said, it's for everyone. I love how as a group, as a community, as librarians, we're always reinventing ourselves and we're always willing. Like the pandemic happened and for one second we said, oh, no. And then after that, we just evolved. Like it was like, oh, what? A pandemic? What? We just transformed. We, we're always willing to to do things, go above and beyond. And I just love that spirit about librarians. I love the fact that libraries are there and I wish every country in the world would have access as much as the United States have. And, and I hope that every single person in this country realize how fortunate they are because not everyone have access, not everyone have these beautiful buildings or even if it's small, you know, but still have access and not everyone has that luxury. And it's a wonderful thing. I love the collection I have. I have an enormous collection. I have about 26,000 copies in my library which is insane for a school as small as mine. And so I love the amount of books I have. I, my students always, it's almost overwhelming for them, but I've become so accustomed to it and I know where everything is now that I can find it pretty easily for them. So I just love the, the difference and, and the diversity that I've built over the last few years in my library. So what is the weirdest, not necessarily the worst, but the weirdest thing that you've ever seen in your library career? There have been so many weird things. Some man once threw a cane at me. I had a strange man who thought I was a teenage girl ask me after ice cream. 
that was a strange thing. Actually, I could tell you many stories about older men who thought I was a teenage girl who tried to take me out on dates. There was a woman once who was outside. She was kind of, she was right outside the library and she took off her underwear and um, went to the bathroom. And she did that in front of a woman and her child and who was really freaked out. And then she may have called the police and that turned into a whole other situation. So yeah, those are some of the, those are some of the weird things I've seen. They don't pay us enough. (laughs) I had to help a patron because we help with technology services. I had to help a patron set up a dating profile for a very specific type of person. And they, I had to help them upload the photos, where to click submit. I drew the line when they were asking me like the purse to answer the questions. I was like, I can help you submit and upload. But beyond that, like that's, I'm not helping you, but that was definitely, definitely the weirdest one. My weird one is I became a job counselor. A patient came in and asked me about a particular drug because somebody in their family wasn't addicted to this particular drug. So I had to help them find out the information about that particular drug. And she was asked, she was asking for my advice. And I'm like, I can't tell you that. I'm not a, a doctor for that. But she kept, she felt more comfortable and she gave me a whole life story. And then I wind up giving her information and she said, thank you for the counsel. So I, I guess I became a drug counselor that day. I think for me, I've had so many things happen, especially now being in administration. But I think I want to say weirdest, but I think it was cute. Like, you know, you have your YA librarian. So you always have these teens that no matter how they're always in the room, you're always they're always getting into trouble. And the other day I went to Dunkin Donuts to get a coffee and I saw him at the, he's the cashier. And he was like, hi, miss, how are you? And I'm like, oh, hi. And then when I got my receipt, he gave me a senior citizen discount. And I was like, well, um, thank you very much. <laughs> but, I, but I felt good. You know what? He came up in the tea room and he was and he think he was doing something really nice for me. And I really appreciated that discount. So whether it was senior citizen or not, it said senior on the receipt. I think that was his way of giving something back to me. So that I thought that was really cute. <laughs> For the record, Keisha is not a senior citizen. <laughs> not even close. Oh, gosh. It would have been the day a kid got shanked in my library. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one yeah. before. <laughs> Being a school librarian is crazy, but I thought, I guess not. Going from high school and college teaching to mostly elementary teaching, I wasn't aware that four-year-olds weren't as adept at using scissors as I thought they would be. So we were making snowflakes as one of our activities to go with a book we'd read and this kid turned around to see how sharp his scissors were and went to pretend cut his friend's face and he sliced him from the corner from his ear to the corner of his mouth and i looked around and i went oh my gosh why did you do that he goes well i just wanted to see if it would cut him (laughs) and so the kid who he had cut wasn't even like reacting to it i don't even think he felt it but i was just like Oh my gosh, it was it was horrifying, and it was my first year teaching there, and I was scared I was losing my job that day. But it all worked out, and things are good. But I have never let four year olds use scissors again since then. Ever. <laughs> all right. So, did you uh, do you folks have a favorite regular customer? 
or a patron or student? Yes, because I worked with so many teens at my old library and, you know, I had like a whole crew of them and they're so special to me still. And I still like I meet with them still like every week. And I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to say their names on here because I want to like protect their privacy. But, um, you know, if they ever listen to this, they're, you're all still so special to me. <laughs> and because I, I, I've been working with them from when they were in middle school and they're, um, you know, they're going to graduate uh, next year. And yeah, I, so yeah, they're, I, <laughs> they're, yeah, they're so, I guess I'm kind of a mentor to them and, you know, they're, yeah, they're so special to me and like, they're, they're my favorites. I run a junior book club and they're definitely my favorite. They're willing to learn are willing to read. They just have, there's a ton of fun. Even if they don't like the book, they're still willing to come and have a good time. All the kids that I had in all the branches that I was in, those, those are all the special, those were my favorites. They gave them my time, I gave them my attention and my love for them and for them to um, be better in their schoolwork and at home, wherever they at. Some I still stay in contact to this day. Some have grown and have children of their own and they we always stay in contact. So all my kids. I mean, all the teams I've ever worked with, but um, one um, gentleman in particular, I remember when I was at one particular library, we were all doing this series of workshop and I did, I remember I was responsible for introduction to Facebook and I helped him create his Facebook page. And every time he comes into the library, he's always looking for me. He was devastated when I moved on to another library, but then he's such an avid library user that he will go from library to library. So I will see him in these, other, and he was like, oh my God. Kesha, is that you? And oh, it warms my heart. And to be honest, I, you know, since the pandemic, I haven't seen him. And I'm just really hoping that everything is okay. And I'm looking forward to seeing him again in the future. Like, you know, I hope he's still the same happy person and just love libraries like all patients should. She's, she's a fifth grade student and, you know, half a year, her, her dad's a college professor. So for half the year, I would lose her. She would go um, away to Africa. But Starting last year with COVID, they came back. And then this year, I didn't lose her at all this year. But she is just is, is my absolute favorite. You know, you also have favorite students, but I just love her. She is so absorbed in everything we do. She was on my reading competition team. She read as many books as she could. She, you know, is invested in every makerspace I do. She, she just she loves everything we do in that library. And and I think it's a mutual favorite, you know, like I'm her favorite. She's my favorite and we know it. And, and it's <laughs> awesome to see her just like get so excited about everything in the library. Okay. Final question. What are people without library cards missing out on? They're, they're missing out on everything because libraries have everything. I mean, if there's a program you want, we most likely are doing it. If there's a book you want, we have it or we can get it for you. We have video games. We have movies. I mean, we have streaming. I, I feel like there's nothing that we don't have or we can't get for you. So by not having a library card, you're really missing out on everything. And I feel like, you know, during the pandemic, we went above and beyond for patrons. I mean, Keisha, like like what you were saying, we, we maybe struggled for like a minute and they're like, okay. And then we just did it. Yeah. I, you know, we brought the library to people's homes. 
in the most inventive ways. So if you didn't have a library card, you were really missing out. And then we made it so easy for people to get them. I mean, now you just have to apply online and we'll mail them to you. So I, and for teens, it's like my library, Greenberg, we make it so easy for teens to volunteer. And we, and now you can volunteer virtually. We've made everything virtual now because of the pandemic. And I'm sure we're, we're going to stick with that. So I just feel like, yeah, we, libraries give, patrons everything and so if you don't have a library card you're missing out so get a library card your local library (laughs) that's an order i think people are just missing out on a place that teaches you it's fun it brings you joy and it's like a comforting space it's kind of like what emily said it's like there's everything you're missing out on the world of knowledge you have the world at your fingertips if you don't have if you have a library card Everything is accessible to you. Again, as we all have been saying throughout the day, everything is for free. It's at your fingertips. Only thing you need to do is have a library card. Oh, they are missing out on everything. I feel, you know, having a library card opens so many doors and you don't have that. You're missing. You're not opening the painted door. That's, that's my new favorite phrase. You know, you're missing the painted door. And that's a reference to the Starless Sea. If you guys haven't read it, it's amazing. You know, having a library card opens so many doors to, to worlds that we would have never visited without them. And that's what is so important to me about, about being in a library and, and having access to the media that we do and just being able to walk outside of our world and live somewhere else for a while. Echo everything, Emily, Johan, Juanita, Danny, like it's everything. We're here. We're always willing to help you. Like just get the card. I mean, we've even gone as far as I don't know if you do this in Suffolk County, Chris, but we have the digital card. So if you're only interested in um, ebooks and just apply for that card and you can just use that. If whatever you want, we're here for you. Phone call away, drive away, just just come in. Also, you don't need a library card to use a library. That's no, not no. <laughs> People think you need a library card. Absolutely. We'll help you if you don't get one. Point. That's, That's the best right. point. That's the best point of everything. You don't need a card to come in. But get one. But get one. <laughs> Absolutely. Like Emily said, that's an order. That's yeah, an that order. Is an order. <laughs> Love that. Can I just first say a huge thank you to Chris yeah. and Bob from Library Pro, you're awesome to do this. Like without you guys' help, making it seem so easy, like being our allies, this would not have been possible. So from the moment I texted Chris, hunting him down at his library, like, can you do this for us? It was a yes. He didn't even know what we wanted. It was a yes. So thank you both so, so much. We really appreciate it. And of course, Nyla. And Jeremy, like, thank you, Nyla, get out the 2021 cohort. We had to do this all online and, you know, we made it work just like librarians do. We always make things work. Thanks, Rebecca, for being our mentor. Jeremy. Thank you, Rebecca. Chris, Bob, Keisha, Emily, Danny, Joanne. It was a great group. And, you know, we hopefully we can keep in touch and continue the conversation. Absolutely. And also, thank you to all the BIPOC groups who are making it happen. I just presented yesterday at the Urban Librarians Conference and, you know, I know I presented in a panel for, oh, yeah, yeah, you were there, Juanita. And, you know, the panel was about like BIPOC groups and like celebrating us and, you know, like taking up space. 
There are BIPOC groups making it happen. I run the Coalition for Library Workers of Color. We're an Isla Roundtable. So, you know, support us, support BIPOC groups. Wow. How do you follow that, Bob? Favorite episode. This is my favorite episode. I haven't oh. been through 88, but this this tops it because it is not only on point, it was well, well presented. We had an absolutely amazing group of people, um, you know, representing the, the need for diversity in libraries. And every one of you did a fantastic job and really shared from the heart and really got us got us uh, going and will really uh, appeal to our listenership. And I think you've changed lives today. Uh, and it's just the start of what I think you're going to do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Diversify is fly. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.